Well, good morning. All right, if you want to turn to Exodus chapter 20, and as you are turning there, I just want to honor some of our deacons that are stepping down. I'm going to mention a few of them, and you can hold your applause, and we'll give it to them at the end. First is uh, Henry Cooper, uh, who has been serving for over six years as a deacon of Mercy Ministry, and he has helped with many of the ministries we have, like our prison ministry, our nursing home ministry, Grief Share. We've actually added too many ministries. We've added all these divorce cares, cancer care, recovery, other bridge courses we're doing, and those are a little more than he's able to do. But he's going to be stepping down after many years of faithful service, caring for these leaders, and helping us to reach men and women with the gospel. I also want to mention Tom and Cindy Smith, who have served faithfully in our Explore course for the last several years, but they are leaving to participate on the Valley Creek Church Planning team. Tom and Cindy have used their administration, their organizing skills, their welcoming demeanor to help run our Explore course and help people in the process of membership. And that's allowed the pastors to really focus on the teaching and getting to know folks as they join the church. Uh, Tom and Cindy have been members of this church for 37 years, and they are going on this church plant because of their commitment to the Lord and to mission. So can we thank God for Henry Cooper and for Tom and Cindy? Can you guys stand up? Good. Thank you so much. Henry, stand up. Stand up. That's him right there. Yes. Good. And Tom and Cindy, where? Oh, Tom and Cindy are over here. Good. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. All right, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 17. The title of my message is, You Shall Not Covet. Verse 17, this is the last of the Ten Commandments. God says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. In 1965, Mick Jagger sang the words to one of the world's most popular songs. It ranks 31st on the top 500 songs of all times. And this is how it starts. I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction. Because I try, and I try, and I try. I can't get no. I can't get no. He says, when I'm driving in my car, when a man come on the radio, he's telling me more and more about some useless information supposed to fire my imagination. I can't get no. Oh, no, no, no. Hey, hey, hey. That's what I say. The last verse goes like this. When I'm watching my TV and a man comes on and tells me how white my shirts can be, but he can't be a man because he doesn't smoke the same cigarettes as me, I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction because I try and I try 
and I try, I can't get no. One of the reasons this song was and is so popular is because of how true it is. We all feel like we can't get satisfaction, the satisfaction that we're looking for, even though we try and we try and we try. We just can't get no satisfaction. Why is that? Well, this is where the Ten Commandments can help us, and especially the last one, you shall not covet. Now, coveting isn't a word we use much, so I'm going to answer three questions this morning. What is coveting? Why do we covet? And how do we change? So first, what is coveting? To covet means to desire earnestly. The Hebrew and Greek word for coveting is the same word translated desire or to earnestly desire. And the word can have a positive meaning, like the fact that we should earnestly desire to prophesy. That's 1 Corinthians 14. But when it comes to coveting in the 10th commandment, it has a negative meaning. Coveting is to want something in a bad way, to be greedy for something. It means desiring something too much. Well, how do you know if you're desiring something too much, if you're coveting? Well, when it begins to become a distraction, a, a preoccupation, when you find yourself complaining about things rather than being thankful for what you have. Now, desires in and of themselves are not always wrong. Some desires are wrong. Some desires are evil. But many desires are good. Desires for food and sleep and intimacy and peace and health and love. These are good desires. But when we want these things too much, the desires begin to rule us and control us. When we lose our contentment in God, when we feel like we have to have these other things in order to be content, we're probably coveting. Now, coveting also orients us toward other people's stuff. It orients towards what others have, which is why it's a close cousin to jealousy. Now, notice in our passage, the first thing that God says is, don't covet your neighbor's house. It's something that someone else has. But why does he start with houses? Why does God start with houses? Well, I think it's because they play such a big part in our lives. We spend a lot of time and money on our homes. We spend a lot of time trying to improve and fix up our homes. We spend a lot of time decorating and filling our homes with things. There are currently 44 shows on TV about homes. Now, the one that I used to watch, which was the king of all these shows, was Fixer Upper with our beloved friends Chip and Joanna Gaines and their eternal quest to find shiplap behind an old wall. Um, for years, this show was one of the most popular shows on TV. Not just home improvement shows, it was one of the most popular shows on TV. I think another reason that God puts homes first is that there are so many things 
that can and do go wrong when it comes to our homes. And these problems provide thousands of things to complain about. Thousands of things that our neighbors have that we don't have. A bigger house, a nicer lawn, newer furniture, a bigger TV, a better neighborhood, nicer decorations, shiplap. <laughs> Do we have that? Do we even have? That's not even the thing here, is it? Is that just Texas? I don't know. Anyway, the list is endless. Now, the next thing that the Lord says is, don't covet your neighbor's wife. Now, this taps into a strong desire we have for relationships, right? We long for the perfect partner, the one who will give us everything that we want and fulfill all our dreams, no struggles or fights, perfect intimacy, long, meaningful conversations, and someone who will serve you at all times. Why do we always assume that these things can be found in another person? It's so easy and so wrong for us to focus on our spouse's weaknesses and sins, assuming that another spouse would not have weaknesses and sins. But we know that sin has affected everyone, right? Not just our spouse, all of the spouses <laughs> are affected by sin. And so God exhorts us, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or husband. Next, you shall not covet your neighbor's male servant or female servant. Now, I don't know what the equivalent would be today. Maybe the male servant could be coveting your neighbor's riding mower. I don't know. Maybe coveting the female servant, maybe that's coveting your neighbor's cleaning lady. I don't know. But you're also not allowed to cover the ox. That's definitely your neighbor's truck. <laughs> and the donkey, that's the car. That's your neighbor's car. So that's clear. But the verse ends, the verse ends by saying, or anything that is your neighbor's. That means anything. We, we can't covet what someone has. We can't covet their health or their shoes or their vacations or their looks or their success or their intelligence. We can't covet. That brings us to number two. Question number two, why do we covet? Why do we covet? Well, Arthur Brooks wrote an article in The Atlantic titled, Why More is Never Enough. And he tried to make the case that evolution has ensured that humans will invariably be dissatisfied with what we have because this positions us to strive to get more and more things even if they only provide us with brief moments of satisfaction. Here's a quote from him. He says, Mother Nature likes watching you strive to achieve an elusive goal because strivers get the goods, even if they don't enjoy them for long. The urge to have more than others, to be more than others, tugs at us relentlessly. Now that's interesting, but is it the reason that we covet? I don't think so. I'll tell you one that hits closer to home. Advertising. 
Now, advertising may not be the root cause of why we covet, but it provides an incredible amount of fuel to our coveting. The U.S. spends over $250 billion a year on advertising, and that doesn't include the billions of salary dollars that are spent on marketing experts who spend their lives convincing you of how dissatisfied you are without their product. But advertising isn't the real reason we covet. It just takes advantage of our sinful hearts. The real reason we covet, listen to this, the real reason we covet is that our hearts are restless. The real reason we covet is that we aren't satisfied with God. We want something else. And we're convinced that something else will bring the satisfaction that we desire. So we focus on things we don't have, things that others have. Our sinful hearts seem to always want what someone else has. Do you ever notice at Christmas when your kids are opening up a gift and, and one of your kids opens a gift and they're just, they love it and it's great until, you know where I'm going with this, one of the siblings opens up one of their gifts and maybe it's bigger or better. Immediately what they had and what was so joyful is cast aside because someone else has what they want. It just seems like what someone else has must be better than what we have. And again, we're not just talking about material things, relationships, or health, or gifting, or looks, or jobs, or popularity. The grass just always seems greener on the other side. But hopefully, as we get older, we realize that the grass isn't greener on the other side. And honestly, we should know this by now, right? I mean, usually when we get something we want, we quickly realize that it's not perfect and it's not bringing us the satisfaction that it promised. And hopefully, we realize more and more it's because only God can satisfy you know, this is the only one of the Ten Commandments that explicitly gets at desire. So coveting is not about what we do or don't do outwardly. It's about what we want. It's about what we desire. God is not just concerned with our outward obedience, as important as that is. He's concerned with our inward obedience. What happens in our hearts and in our minds, the, the things that nobody sees. You know, it's one thing to look good on the outside. Lots of people can do that. But to look good on the inside, to control our thoughts, our, our desires, that is way harder. That's like the difference between overpowering a house cat as opposed to a wild tiger. Both are hard. But one is impossible. 
You know, there's, a, there's a lot that goes on inside of us that never comes out. There's a lot of coveting that poisons our hearts. That's why this commandment is at the root of so many of the other sins that we commit. Our sinful desires precede all of the commands that we break. So if we fail to remember the Sabbath, it's because we want something else or we're coveting something else that we think is more important than the Sabbath. If we murder, we, we first want to eliminate someone. If we commit adultery, we want to have sex with someone. If we steal, we want what they have. If we lie, we want a better reputation than someone. This is why Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that sin is not just about outward disobedience. It's about what happens in our hearts. We covet because we want to find satisfaction in other things. Now, the Ten Commandments are amazing. The Ten Commandments are about finding satisfaction in God. They're about prioritizing God. That's why we can't have any other gods or idols. It's why we can't take God's precious name in vain. It's why we set aside one day a week for the Lord. We have to put God first and find our satisfaction in him. That's the brilliance of the commandments. They tell us to find satisfaction in the only one who can truly satisfy. Covenant fellowship. He is satisfying. He can satisfy you. If you have God, you don't need anything else. I love how Jesus says it in John 35, John 6, 35. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The 10th commandment shows us that we need God. Fleeting worldly pleasures will not satisfy. But God doesn't come to us and say, a shame on you for wanting things. No. He says, you're wanting the wrong things. I can give you something so much better. I can satisfy you. In the movie Cars, there is this little Italian car named Luigi. And Luigi sells the tires. And Lightning McQueen comes to Luigi to get these tires. And he just kind of wants these black tires. And there's this great line where Luigi just says, you don't know what you want. <laughs> Luigi know what you want. See, Luigi was going to set him up with these beautiful white wall tires. And I love that line. When he says, you don't know what you want, he's saying, he's really saying, Luigi's really saying, you, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what you need. I, I know what you need. That's what God says to us. You don't know what you want. <laughs> you, you don't know what's going to satisfy you, what, what you really need, but I know 
I know what you need. See, when we don't find our satisfaction in God, we will covet. Think about how terrible this sin is. When we covet anything, we're saying, God is not enough for us. He's not satisfying. And we usually say that with our lives, not with our words. We say it when we turn to other things instead of to God. When we covet what others have, when we complain, when we grumble, when we're discontent. We're making a terrible statement about what we think about God. We're declaring that he is not good and he is not loving and he will not take care of us. Kevin DeYoung says, so much of our frustration in life comes from wanting things that God has not given us. In our covetous desire, we concentrate on what we don't have rather than on what we do have. Do you feel frustrated in life? Do you complain? Do you feel anxious about the future? Do you lack contentment? Do you wish you had a different body, a different mind, different abilities, a different job, a different spouse, a different family, a different relationship, a different life. What do we do with this? Well, Jesus helps us in Matthew chapter 6 where he says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Listen to this. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He's going to take care of the rest. You seek me, I'll take care of everything else. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Or Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. My dear brothers and sisters, you know how much I love you. He is enough for you. He is enough. If you only have Jesus, he is enough. That brings us to our third point. How do we change? So how do we change? All right, this is hard. This is really hard because there are things that we really want. You want to be married. You want a better job. You want your kids to do well. And we all want to follow God in this. And from my perspective, you guys are doing an amazing job. There are so many of you who are suffering and in the midst of terrible trials. Those who have lost loved ones, I think of Bev Farley, and I think of Andrew Adams and Lila Knox. 
I think of Maggie and Fitz. I think of people like Alan Redrup who are going through a terrible trial. And so many others just come to my mind. The way you are trusting God and finding your satisfaction in God in the midst of terrible difficulty. What an example you are to this church. You're, you're leading the way. You're showing us how to trust God. Thank you. So, how do we change? How do we do this? How do we change? Well, in 19... I'm sorry, in 1648, a man named Jeremiah Burroughs wrote the book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. So, contentment is the opposite of coveting. And this is an amazing book. It's an insightful book. It's very convicting. And I was almost done reading this book when my backpack that had the book in it got stolen. And this was bad because I had the book. I was almost done. It's a, it's a dense book. It was hard to get through. I had basically half the book underlined. I was going to use a lot of those quotes for this message. And so the problem is when you're reading a book about coveting and you lose something that you really wanted and needed, you're not allowed to get angry at that point. So I was like, oh, I can't. oh, wait, I can't. I was reading a book. Be careful what you read. You know, you start reading about this stuff. You're going to get tested soon on how. You know. So I'm like trying to be like patient and be like, okay, I'll just get another copy and read it again. So I got another and read it again. I was convicted all over again of the same points. I thought, you know, maybe I'm just so dense I need to read it twice. Maybe that's why the Lord, that's probably is why the Lord did this. But, but I want to share some thoughts here that are influenced by Jeremiah Burroughs. And I'm gonna put them under two headings. First, we need to realize the dangers of coveting. We have to realize the dangers of coveting, and there are many. One is that coveting never brings satisfaction. It will never work. It will never give you what you want. Ecclesiastes 5.11 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with gain. This also is vanity. And here's Jeremiah Burroughs. He says, Many men think that when they are troubled and have not got contentment, it is because they have but a little in the world, and if they had more, then they should be content. That is just as if a man were hungry, and to satisfy his craving stomach, he should gape and hold open his mouth to take in the wind. And then should think that the reason why he is not satisfied is because he has not got enough of the wind. No. The reason is because the thing is not suitable to a craving stomach. Oh, poor deluded man, it is not because you have not got enough of it, but because it is not the thing that is proportional to the immortal soul that God has given you. Coveting will never bring satisfaction. Coveting also chokes off spiritual life. It chokes our spiritual life. Jesus told us this in the parable of the soils in Mark 4. He said that the seed that fell among the thorns got choked out. There were, there were thorns that grew up around the little plant and choked it out. And do you remember what he said those things were? They were the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things. Pursuing the world will 
choke out the fruit that God wants to produce in our life. It will, it will diminish our spiritual pursuit of God. It will, it will choke out our spiritual life. So coveting chokes us out. Coveting is also a terrible waste of time. When, when we want something we don't have, what do we usually do? Well, we usually let our worries and desires take the wheel of our minds and drive around for hours thinking about what we don't have and all the things that we want. It's a wasted drive. It's a waste of gas. And gas is expensive. (laughs) It's all in vain. Listen to Jeremiah Burroughs. He says, oh, had I had this grace of contentment. What a happy life I might have lived. What abundance of honor I might have brought to the name of God. What a great deal of comfort I might have enjoyed. But the Lord knows it has been far otherwise. Oh, how far have I been from this grace of contentment, which has been expounded to me. I have had a murmuring, a vexing, and a fretting heart within me. Every little cross, and this convicted me. He's talking about every little trial, just the little things that can knock me off of the contentment track. This convicted me both times when I read it. Every little cross has put me out of temper and out of frame. Oh, the boisterousness of my spirit. What evil God sees in the vexing and fretting of my heart and murmuring, murmuring and repining of my spirit. All right, so that's what we need to do first. We have to realize the dangers of coveting. And then second, we have to find contentment in God. Now, contentment is not something we have. It's something that is learned. Paul had to learn contentment. Listen to this amazing verse in Philippians 4. He says, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Imagine if we could say that. That's an amazing statement. Imagine if every one of us could say, guess what? I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. That's That's beautiful. That's a beautiful church. And so many of you are doing such an amazing job in that. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. We can do this, church. We can learn contentment. So how do we do it? Well, a couple thoughts. We first need to, listen to this, melt our will down into God's will. This is one of the points in the book that really helped me. So to melt our will into God's will. Let's, let's say there's something that you really want, something you desire. How can you be content when you don't get what you want? Here's how. Contentment is not about getting what you want. It's about wanting what God has given you. Listen to Jeremiah Burroughs again. He says, a gracious heart is contented by the melting of his will and desires into God's will and desires. By this means he gets contentment. 
It is not by having his own desires satisfied, but by melting his will and desires into God's will, so that in one sense he comes to have his desires satisfied, though he does not obtain the thing that he desired before. Still, he comes to be satisfied with this because he makes his will to be at one with God's will. So he's saying that we have to take our desires, let's say our desires are up here, and make them shrink down to our circumstances, make our desires and circumstances equal. That's what he means by shrinking down or melting down our will into God's will. And this isn't just a kind of a grudging submission to God's will. It's actually making or wanting God's will, wanting what God wants. So we have to subtract from our desires. And that will give us contentment in God. Plutarch, the Greek philosopher who lived in the first century, he tells a story of a trusted counselor named Sinius who came to speak to King Pyrrhus and he wanted to persuade him not to go to war with the Romans. So he said this. He said to the king, May it please your majesty, it is reported that the Romans are very good men of war. And if it please the gods that we overcome them, what benefit shall we have of that victory? Pyrrhus answered him, Well, we shall then straightway conquer all the rest of Italy with ease. Indeed, that is likely what your grace speaks, said Sinius. But when we have won Italy, will our wars end then? If the god were pleased, said Pyrrhus, that the victory were achieved, the way would then be made open to us to attain great conquest. For who would not afterwards go into Africa or so into Carthage? But, said Sinius, when we have everything in our hands, what shall we do in the end? Then Pyrrhus, laughing, told him, we will then be quiet and take our ease and have feasts every day and be as merry with one another as we possibly can. Sinius said, what prevents us from being as quiet and merry together since we enjoy that immediately without further travel and trouble, which we would seek for abroad with such shedding of blood and manifest danger? Can you not sit down and be merry now? There is nothing that we need right now to be content. We can be at rest, we can be quiet, and we can be content with what we have now. Now we also need to remember that God is sovereign. He's sovereign. This is why we can embrace God's will for our lives, even when it means trials and unfulfilled desires. Listen, God is in control of every detail of your life. God is also in control of every detail in the lives of everyone around you. God is in control of your circumstances. He is in control of your finances. He is in control of your relationships. He is in control of your health. He is in control of your kids. He is in control of those who are dying and those who have passed away. And it's not just that he's in control, that he has all the power. We, we don't have an uncaring God that arbitrarily steers us around the track of life. No, we have a loving God who does all things for our good and for his glory. The word providence might be better here because providence captures 
more than just sovereignty and control, it communicates a care and a benevolence, a kindness and love. That is the God that we serve. Kevin DeYoung says, the truth is that if God wanted us to have more right now, we would have it. If we needed different gifts to enable us to glorify him, he would provide them. If we were ready for the job or the ministry we want, he would put us into it. If we were supposed to be in a different situation in life, we would be in it. Instead of always saying, if only this and if only that, God calls us to glorify him to the fullest right now, whatever situation we are. See, when we realize that that God is providential, even when life doesn't turn out the way we want, we can be content by trusting in God's providence. Jeremiah Burroughs said, will you be above God? Is this not God's hand? And must your will be regarded more than God's? Oh, under, under, get you under, oh soul. Keep under, keep low. Keep under God's feet. Keep under the authority of God, the majesty of God, the sovereignty of God, the power that God has over you. We also need to deny ourselves in order to be content. And I'm just going to be honest. We stink at this. I stink at this. We're horrible at denying ourselves. We, we tend to feed our desires and appetites when at times we should be denying ourselves. Jesus was such a great example of denying himself and his sacrifices, his denying of himself, even emptying of himself, shows the incredible extent of his contentment and trust in God. Do you deny yourself? What are some of the things that you could go without? Part of finding contentment in God is denying things that your flesh demands. And last sub-point here, we need to know God. How do you find contentment and satisfaction in God? We have to know God. The reason that we look for satisfaction in other things is because we don't know God as we should. We don't realize the all-satisfying God that he is. We, we barely understand his love. We scarcely comprehend his grace. We've only scratched the surface in seeing him for who he is. This is why reading God's word is so important. This is why reading other spiritual books is important, like the rare jewel of Christian contentment. This is why coming to church on Sunday and hearing sermons is so important. This is why prayer and fellowship and community group is so important. All of these things take us deeper in our knowledge of God and what he has done for us. You know, I've spent a lot of time over the last couple weeks thinking about all the things that I covet, all the ways that I covet. So the new Ford Bronco, uh, my brother-in-law's perfect yard, one of my teams, any one of my teams winning a championship, um, smoked brisket, which my friend cooks all the time, and a million other things, okay? What are the things that you covet? What do you covet? What are the things that you desire? What are the areas where you're discontent? Listen, we are all great sinners, but we have a great Savior. 
And don't just think about all the ways you covet. Think about the fact, and I've been thinking about this this week, that Jesus would save us from all our coveting and discontentment. Coveting will spell doom for those who don't know Christ. But for those who do know Christ, our sin is a constant reminder of the stunning forgiveness that we have in Christ. God didn't just decide to ease up on our sin and lower his standards so that we could get into heaven. He didn't decide to lower the bar of his holiness. No, he decided to pay the penalty that we deserve for the millions of ways we've desired things above God. All so that we could be brought into a relationship with the only one who can satisfy, all so that we might know him. So let's, let's look at our sin. Let's think about the ways we've coveted. Make a list, that's a good idea. But let's look far more at the cross and the towering love of Christ who hung there. And as we come to know him, the things of the world and the circumstances of our lives will become less important and we will grow in contentment. We won't covet the way we used to. Last quote from Jeremiah Burroughs. He says, when the soul is once taken up with the things that are of absolute necessity, it will not be much troubled about other things. What are the things that disquiet us here but some by matters in this world? And it is because our hearts are not taken up with the one absolutely necessary thing. There's an old Swedish hymn that says, day by day and with each passing moment, strength I find to meet my trials here, trusting in my Father's wise bestowment. I have no cause for worry or to fear. He whose heart is kind beyond all measure gives unto us each day what he deems best. Lovingly, it's part of pain and pleasure, mingling toil with peace and rest. Or as Mick Jagger said, four years after writing, I can't get no satisfaction, he probably learned a few things. He said, you can't always get what you want. You get what you need. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand up.